Good evening, everyone. Come on in, have a seat. Thanks for being here. It's time for our annual uh, Q&A with the speakers uh, here at our at Legacy Conference. And uh, this, this is a difficult uh, thing for me to do. I, I, don't, I don't count myself as good at this, coming up with questions and the guys help me, and then it's the problem of asking them in a coherent way where they make sense. So if I don't ask it in a good way, just reinterpret it, spin it, Make it into a question that you understand, then answer that question. Okay, that's probably the best way to do it. So we certainly want to ask things related to the theme and, and what you've preached on uh, today, but uh, and this weekend. But uh, maybe I'll throw in a personal question or two as well. We'll see. Uh, but we need to end at six for dinner. We've got a dinner break coming up, so we want to be careful about that as well. But when it comes to the whole theme here this this weekend, the fatherhood of God. I mean, we're we're a Bible-teaching church, a Bible-believing church, and I think of all the, the friends I have that are in Bible-teaching churches, and, and I grew up in that environment, in, in Baptistic churches, and, and yet this, this is not really something emphasized that much, you know. Why is that? I mean, and we tend to focus on Christ and the gospel, which is not a bad focus, but have you, have you seen the same thing, Rick, that it's just a missing element in our thinking? You've got to use your microphone there. Yes. Okay, good. Yeah. Second question uh, is, what did you mean by that when you said yes? Uh, would you elaborate on that yes? It seemed to have a tone to it, so it must mean more. Uh, I'll, I'll follow up if you want me to. Yes, follow up. Okay. Fix that. Well, I, I, and I think that's, um, I, I wasn't conscious of that uh, myself until... Uh, the responsibility came to preach on that issue as, as at the master's college when they were asking in, in a particular time to, uh, to deal with those distinctions. And I hadn't even really thought as a pastor, and I don't know how many years I'd been in ministry with regard to those distinctions. And then uh, as I began to study that, I said that it was profitable. It wasn't confusing, but it was profitable to kind of dig in more to the revelation. But then what? Kerry says, is that uh, uh, then you begin to see, or at least the same impression to me, that there is this emphasis which is glorious and grand. I mean, all of, most of the hymns that we sing uh, are, are to Christ, the very one who has drawn near that we might draw near. And, I, and that's all wholly appropriate. But in so, sometimes, in my own sense, uh, in ministry, it, it seems like the Father gets lost. God himself who is the massive theme of the Old Testament, is kind of left in the dust. And, that, and again, that's my impression. And that we forget him without really intending to as we exalt Christ. And, uh, and so I think it is good for us to, to look at all these things. And, and obviously on the, other, uh, on the other end, the Spirit himself. And, and, and to consider his work, because we know all of the excesses with regard to the spirit and then understanding our relationship to him and his work in our in our lives and so the I, I think opening up these distinctions and recognizing them for they are real distinctions uh, is helpful for us not necessarily confusing as we as we go to prayer we can offer our prayers to Christ uh, we don't have to all say wait a second what did he say in that sermon am I am I going astray as long as we're focused on the redeemer and the and the uh, Father, we're not going to miss it. And the Spirit's going to lead us and help us. 
but I, but I think it's good for us to, to get a, a larger view of our great God. And uh, I think that's, that's the one thing, at least in our congregation, when that was presented, it was like a new thing to our people. I never thought about these things that way. I never thought about the Father those ways. And I, and I think even from a, at least from a pastoral viewpoint, that was the perspective of the congregation. We, we know the Father, we know of God, and we, but we know of Christ, but this, this, this focus or this emphasis for a season on the, on the Father, really, as I now go through my scriptures, I begin to see those things. In Wyoming, there are antelope all over the place where we live, and you never see them. They're all right by the road, but they blend in to the surroundings so easily. But the minute you point one out to somebody and say, there's an antelope, and they see it, then they see them all over the place because they're there. You know, it's just like the doctrine of election. You don't think anything about it. Somebody says, well, why don't you go look through the scriptures? And all of a sudden, that which really is all there is there. And so bringing out these distinctions and this reality of the Father and who he is and what he's done builds up our faith and strengthens uh, our understanding of the Godhead whom we look to and, and whom Christ has brought us to. Have you found that to be true in your own ministry, uh, Anthony, as you've matured, uh, coming to think more Trinitarian, or do you find yourself uh, defaulting that we're we're like a lot of our sister churches say, you know, we we love the Word of God and we're Christ-focused, you know, as a church? I think it's a great question. The answer to the first part of it is yes, and I have been immensely helped uh, by preaching through the Gospel of John. Right In the Gospel of John, we clearly focus on Christ, but Christ is pointing everything to the Father. I've been sent by the Father. The Father sent me, and even as I tried to emphasize today, uh, in John 17, the Father, Father. So that was just really helpful. Uh, I finally finished. I actually caught Carrie, you guys, and uh, passed him and finished the Gospel of John. He was in front of me, so on Saturday nights when I had finished my study, and I said, let me see what Pastor Carrie had to say about this passage. And then lo and behold, you guys gave him a break and I passed him. But that's a whole other question. So um, so it was helpful for me just to be, in some senses, reintroduced to the Father. Because so this it, Sunday, I'm going to finish chapter 20 and do chapter 21 <laughs> all this coming Sunday. You know, so I can, I can be caught up. So there was almost a reintroduction for me to the Father because the Son is doing all things to bring glory to the Father. So that was helpful. But your original question, I think one of the things for us at Bible churches is, is because I, I think... We are always defending the Bible, and I think a lot of the attacks come at the at the person of Christ and at the person of the Holy Spirit. And so we emphasize, as, as Rick just mentioned, a lot of the excesses. And so we we're battling with charismatic and hypercharismatics, and so we're writing books and and thinking about the role of the Holy Spirit. And so he gets a lot of attention. And then I think there's there's always this um this emphasis on being Christ-centered, right? Christ-centered preaching and Christ-centered counseling and Christ-centered marriages and Christ-centered parenting and all of the Christ-centeredness. So we're, we're focusing on Christ, but you, you never hear, you know, father-centered counseling, <laughs> you know, father-centered anything. So I think just by the way that we kind of spend our time, the focus goes on the father and the focus goes on the Holy Spirit, but it's right and good for us, as Rick said, to bring ourselves back to the Father, because in some senses, obviously in union with the Son and with union with the Holy Spirit, he, He's driving this redemptive drama that we're participating in, and we need to see that. So it's been really helpful uh, for those reasons, yeah. 
Yeah, and, and I have seen that in the Gospel of John, that you can't help but conclude that Jesus was very father-focused. You know, it was, I'm sent by the Father, and, and the, the desire to be obedient to the Father, uh, and to uh, please the Father. You know, that keeps coming up in his own in his own discussions with people and with his disciples. And so you, you do then begin to realize that we, we are not just Christ-focused, we are Trinitarian-focused. Maybe some of the rub comes even from knowing, well, the Father, the Father himself exalted the Son, you know, and, wants, and, and puts focus on the Son, and it's going to sum up all things in Christ, as Scripture says. And so that heightens that, that significance of the Son. You've got the Spirit who's not calling attention to himself, but is, is, is pointing people to Christ. And as Paul says in Corinthians, you know, no one can say Jesus is Lord you know, except by the Spirit of God. And it's not saying things like no one can say, you know, you know, the Father. And yet you have what you, you preach today about how the Spirit works, prompts us to say Abba, Father. So there is that other side. So it's just interesting uh, that we historically were Trinitarian. We, I think we would answer that question right on the exam. But practically speaking, it just seems that we, we, we easily default uh, to Christ. And, and there you get in that, that category and we easily default to, for the way I was raised, to the cross. It's the cross and the cross and the sacrifice of Christ. And, and then you realize, oh, there's even more to it than that. It's the, the resurrection of Christ and the exaltation of Christ, the ascension, and the, the ministry, the present tense ministry of Christ at the right hand of God that's going on and the return of Christ. So I don't know. We just easily find ourselves, you know, getting that, that niche of something that is significant and important, sometimes the conclusion of something else. So as much as anything, that was the reason for the theme, is to heighten the awareness of the Trinity, the Godhead. Uh, and so I appreciate how you men have done that, and you've, you've expanded our thinking uh, of the significance of the Father in our lives. But obviously we can say, yeah, but we've got to think the right things about the Father. And so you've helped us with that as well. Have, have you seen that in your pastoral ministry and counseling that some of the that people struggle with having a right view of the Father, that they have some sort of skewed view of him in some way? If so, what kind of skewed views do, do people tend to default to have uh, that you've seen in your, in your pastoral ministry over the years? Well, in my experience, and I shared a little bit about it uh, this morning, that it's this it's separation between the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. And the God of the Old Testament, which most people uh, refer to the Father, that he's this God that he's filled with wrath and he's angry. And, I mean, he destroys whole cities and he commands his people to go in and wipe out whole, you know, towns and mothers and fathers, the whole kind of thing. And so people take that and then they come to the New Testament and they see Jesus coming. And Jesus is meek, and he's mild, and he's full of love. And so they make this kind of dichotomy that obviously yeah, the scriptures... children in his yeah, lap. Yeah, exactly. You know? Yeah, and they make this dichotomy that the scriptures don't allow us to make, but they make it, and so they're more comfortable with Jesus. But the Father is so stern, and it's almost like the, you know, the Son has come here to you know, kind of appease the Father, just you know, lighten up Father, because they're really not that bad. Almost the idea of that. And so that's just been my challenge in, in, with some people... Um, to just say, no, the Father, and, and Rick did this so so wonderfully for us in, in all of his sessions, that the Father is filled with love, the Father is filled with mercy, the Father is filled with compassion, that, that, that he sins and saves out of love and out of grace. And so I think once you can attach those dots for people to see that there's not uh, this, this, this 
the Father and the Son and their mission to save are, are not in opposition toward one another. That's been really helpful. And once the lights come on, I could see people beginning to say, okay, yeah, I get that. But you have to keep reinforcing just the love of the Father and the mercy of the Father. And I, and I do think sometimes that, that, and it's right to do this because you can go too far the other way, that I do think we, we need to, to, to talk about the love and the, and the grace and the, and the mercy of the Father. Uh, I found in, in, in my preaching, that particularly preaching out of the Old Testament, I tended to go most to the holiness of God and the righteousness of God. And it's not wrong to do that, but I found myself not balancing that out enough with the other attributes of God. Uh, and so I had to take some responsibility of that to say, hey, am I fully shaping the people that God has given to me to minister to by preaching the full attributes of God so that they can see the wholeness of who God the Father is? Which reminds me of a text in the Old Testament. God didn't go through menopause or something between the Old and the New Testament. <laughs> you know, he, he remains the same. And, is, and he says, you know, I, I mean, you go into the prophets, and I, I suppose this is just one of my favorite sections of, of, uh, uh, of looking at God, who is this God, even in the context of his holiness as well. In Hosea 11, Love that will not let me go is almost the theme that I would give to the book of Hosea, a minor prophet. Uh, and, but it says, when Israel was a youth, I loved him. Out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they called, that is the prophets, the more they went from them. The prophets went from the, the people went from the prophets. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning incense to idols. Yet it is I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them in my arms, and when I think of those pictures, then I think of those pictures when we have our little kids, and, and you know, and, and we're we're sitting there on our knees in the living room, and everybody's getting the camera because they're about to take those second steps, and the arms are out, and you have this picture of the tenderness of God, uh, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of a man with bonds of love. I became to them as one who lifts the yoke from their jaws. I bent down and fed them. So you have this incredible picture of his care but it's in the face of continual rejection. And, and that's what he goes to. And so it's rejection, tender love, rejection, tender love, rejection, tender love. And then he asks this incredible question. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I surrender you, O Israel? And I'm saying, how can you not? How can you not desert them and forsake them, this, this recalcitrant, rebellious child? How can I treat you like Adma and Zeboam, the cities next to Sodom and Gomorrah? How can I treat you like them? I'm saying this is an amazing question for you to ask because I'm the holy one and I recognize they're unholy. But he says this, my heart is turned over within me and all my compassions are kindled. And, and that, that, is, that is almost like that man you talked about, the example of what, what on earth is going on? And this is God here. And, and, and yet he says this, I will not execute my fierce anger. I will not destroy Ephraim again. And here's his reasons why he won't do it. For I am God and not man. I'm not like you. My ways are not like your ways. And in, in Isaiah, when he begins to contrast his ways, it's in terms of showing mercy. You would wreck, would throw someone out. He says, I am God and not man, the Holy One in your midst. 
And, and so you see this aspect and character of God in the Old Testament manifested in an incredible way where the heart of God, in a sense, is just laid bare as he will let us see by pictures the own turmoil and compassion of his soul over the wickedness of errant children. So uh, it's, it's glorious. And, uh, and yet then when you get to the New Testament, 1 Peter 1, you know, conduct your lives in, if you dress as father, okay, this one, then conduct your lives in fear. I, I, I mean, th there's a sense in which we, we do manifest the character of the love of God. But we also, we, uh, and I'll, I'll use a word that probably, well, I, I think I can use it here safely. There are certain, I, I guess, the masculinity and strength and power of God, the authority of God, that we ourselves are to also respect. And this is what is so amazing. The more holy, the more exalted, the more mighty that we see him, then the more amazing that this God's heart would be overturned in the face of our own sin that he might show us mercy. So, they're, they're, like everything, they all work together. Well, you, you just both described that one of the issues then in people that you minister to or you have in congregations or any of us if there's a skewed view of, about God, it's out of balance in some way. So there, there's one issue that you're affirming some attribute of God, but not some other attribute of God. I mean, just take the, the balance of affirming his sovereignty. And if that's all you, all you think about is sovereignty, then that, that could lead someone to just be thinking in terms, yeah, he, he's a God of, of power. I don't doubt that. Yes, he is in control of, all any, of everything. But he must not be a God of love because look what I'm going through, you know. And, and obviously you could go the other way. Well, yes, no, I, I believe God is a God of love. I, I know that he would help me if he could. And so there they're not affirming, you know, his sovereignty and his power in some way. And so sometimes in pastoral ministry and in our teaching, over the course of time at least in your preaching, you're, you're trying to, to correct that out of balance sort of view so that they're affirming we're all affirming God's sovereignty and his power, but also his goodness. You don't want to disconnect those things. You know, they, they work together. So it could be out of balance is the problem of a skewed view of God. As well, and you've, you've alluded to this uh, about placing on God our own characteristics in some way. That, that's come out in the preaching. Uh, what's the danger there when we start defining God or even God's love by, by, by starting with us in some way and then placing that upon God. I think somebody has said as well, you know, that, that in the beginning God created us in his own image and we've returned the favor by recreating God after our own image. And, and, and I don't mean to be flippant by that because I, I think people can have deep wounds and deep scars um, from experience by, and we'll just keep it as a father growing up maybe on the, the harsh you know, leadership of a father, maybe there may be abuse, maybe there may be even for some ladies, or even for some men, you know, when they were growing up, sexual abuse and those things, that's, that's traumatic. And so they leave scars. And so sometimes it takes a long time for a person uh, to submit those things under the authority of Scripture and the Holy Spirit and not impute those things to the father. So I found myself in a couple of, uh, of really long-term counseling um, uh, relationships with some folks that that uh, as we dug further and further as to why they were um, 
struggling with resting in the, the goodness and the love of God that we finally got down to the bottom that there were some deep wounds that they were having. And, and I think as pastors and shepherds, we really need to be sensitive to that. You know, it can't be like, okay, you know, just, just change the way that you think. It, it doesn't work like that. You know, you really have to slowly, with the help of the Holy Spirit and, 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 uh, and with kind counsel from the scriptures, help them see that, no, you don't have to frame your vision of the Father by your earthly father, that we want to work on changing that by going from text and text, just like what Brother Rick just opened up to help them see that, no, God, the father is nothing like your earthly father. And he has saved you because he wants to bring you into his heart and, and, and have you experience what true love, what true protection, what true care is really about. So uh, I've been blessed to walk with a couple of them. It's just interesting that it's been a couple of ladies in our church been blessed to be able to walk with them through that. Yeah, so we put that kind of experience on God. I've, I've heard it put this way, that we're supposed to exegete Scripture. Ex exegesis, you know, that's that word we've used in, in our kinds of churches where we're digging out of Scripture what it says. We, we exegete it. We get out of Scripture what God says in it. And so we, we're supposed to come to the conclusion of what we believe by exegeting Scripture. The problem is we, we tend many people tend to exegete their experience. So we get out of our experience and we come to some conclusions about that and then force that on Scripture or force it on our view of God so it's going the wrong direction. You know, I've come to my conclusion about God based upon my own experience that I've exegeted. So, exegeted. so God must be like this because of my experience with my earthly father. Or even take love. Uh, it's not that difficult to define God's love by exegeting my own love that I have toward people. Well, there's some problems with it sometimes. I, th I mean, I think Pam would say that mostly 99% of the time I'm, I'm pretty sacrificial and loving and, and just gracious and, and, and such a model, you know, of all of that. I'm so glad she's not here tonight to hear this. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, no, I mean, in, in reality, in reality, I, I, I'm fickle. You know, I'm fickle. You know, my 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 definition of love and expression of it can can be all over the place, or it's uh, it's based upon my own experience in another way, or it's it's it, we we love other people if they've done something for us. If they love us, then we find it easy to love them. But if they're not lovable, uh, move on to somebody else. You know, I mean, all of that is just you know. Uh, result of our own flesh and, and so we can put that on God even defining you know God that way and isn't it a blessing he isn't like us yeah. I mean if we were the God if it was our emotions if it was our attitudes and everything else uh, it would be a frightening place to live and uh, it is glorious that this incredible these incredible attributes themselves are just joined to his holiness and righteousness that there is a perfection in his character uh, and that in every way that he is unlike us, we ought to rejoice in that. So, Is it possible as well, and I think maybe you alluded to this, uh, something you said today uh, in one of your sermons, Rick, that um, we have to be careful about understanding how certain attributes are going to be expressed more to the lost world versus his own people. And I forgot how you how you alluded to that, but there, there are those attributes. I mean, he's he's all that he is all the time. So we're not subdividing him some way. But at the same time, we tend to want to 
we have a skewed view of him of how he relates to us as his people by only thinking in terms of his wrath and his justice and things like that. Uh, is it, it, would it be right to say that there are, there are certain expressions of those attributes that it's only the lost world experiences and there's something else that is more what we are going to experience uh, from him? Would it be fair to say it that way or is there a better way to say it? Uh, like his love, for instance, uh, versus his wrath. It just seems like that some Christians are really struggling with God still being a God of wrath, and that's what they're, they're concerned about, his wrath and punishment of me in someone when I fail. Does God relate to us that way still as, as believers, that there's wrath and punishment for us? No. Good. Uh, <laughs> let's just say we wanted to flesh How that dare answer you suggest out a little that. bit. It seemed like there was a tone there that means more. I, I don't know. Let's flesh that out. Pam needs to speak to you about that. I mean, I think, um, uh, no, there is no wrath for us. I, I mean, that's, we will, we will know not even a spark of divine wrath. When we came to Jesus Christ, he drank it all. We will never experience even an infinitesimal amount what the Son of God experienced for us. The world itself will experience the wrath that Jesus experienced, not in its fullness that he bore it. Uh, but we will, we will never know that wrath from which we've been delivered. We will never experience that which he himself fully experienced for us, which is incredible. There are some things we'll be ignorant of, and that is the most glorious thing that we will never know. And sometimes, I, I, you know, in the counseling issue, some people come to, come to their Christian life thinking, I'm being punished. This is the wrath of God upon me. And as, and, and as Anthony set forth, you know, no, we'll know his discipline, uh, but that's not wrath. That, that is all, as he will also say, working out all things for our good uh, in all of his righteous purposes. But we, we are not being punished in the midst of those trials and difficulties and things like that. He isn't making up for what Jesus didn't cover. You know, he covered it all. We don't believe in purgatory uh, in this life or in the... So are you, are you saying not just our past sins? You know, we come to Christ and, and, and we're converted now. We, we, we've asked for his forgiveness, so everything in the past is covered. What about future sins that we commit? I don't want to talk about those. Yeah. Are they covered? They're all covered. Yeah. 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 Fully, freely, forever. Yeah. yeah. And it, it is interesting, though, when when you say that, it, it, and we say it like like duh, but I, I do think there are Christians sometimes who struggle with that. They think of like, okay, when I come to Christ, you know, all of the sins that I committed up to that point that I come to Christ have been forgiven, but but you know, not my future sins. But you know, I, I try to tell people like, you know. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, all of your sins were in the future, right? All of them. And they recovered when he said to tell us that it is finished, paid in full. The debt is paid. That's all of our sins. So it doesn't stop at the point that you become a believer, but all of your sins, past, present, and future. And what a comforting, comforting doctrine that is for us. And I, and I think the other thing, too, and, and I think also uh, Pastor Rick went there as well in the Hebrews text. I think sometimes we... We have a difficult we have difficulties separating out pain and punishment. 
And so we think that because I'm, I'm experiencing pain, we understand maybe the, the, the doctrine of sovereignty, so we believe that God is sovereign over my pain, I'm experiencing pain, but pain is somehow or another always attached to punishment, and it's not. You know, Hebrews 12 said it's discipline, and, and even when our, I think the, the writer says, even when our, our, our fathers, our earthly fathers disciplined, it wasn't pleasant. So it doesn't mean that the discipline that God is, is providentially bringing into our lives is going to be pleasant, but he's not punishing us. He's not doing that because he's mad at us. In fact, the text says he's doing it because he loves us. It's, it's, it's the sons and the daughters that he doesn't discipline, that those are illegitimate children. So it is expression of his love. And I think if I can go off a little bit here, I know I'm going off that, so it's okay, right? You, you, parents, when, when you discipline your children, it just attach the discipline of your children to your love for them so that they don't grow up thinking that, oh, dad and mom, they're mad at me. They're punishing me because you want to represent the love of the father and the discipline of the father. So tell them that the reason, little Johnny, that I'm disciplining you is because mommy loves you. Daddy loves you. We're not angry. And, I, and one of the lessons that I learned a little bit later, it's a regret that I have, is that I, I can think back on the times that I disciplined my children out of anger. Because I, I felt that they offended me. And, and I know I didn't serve them well. And I know it was a dishonor to the Lord. And, and I've repented of that. And, I, and I, every opportunity that I have, now that my children are, 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 are almost grown, all of them, I tell younger parents to deal with your anger before you go discipline your children. Deal with the offenses and the slights. Because at, at the end of the day, it's not about you. It's about the offense against God. And you're representing your heavenly father when you discipline your children, whether it's you dad or you mom, and you want to teach them that God loves you so much that he means to correct you and it may cause you pain. And I think if we can separate that out, then we can embrace even the pain that comes into our life and realize it comes from a father who loves us dearly and he is orchestrating even the painful, difficult trials of our lives for our good so that we might share in his holiness. Yeah, I love that passage in Hebrews because it uses that word afterwards. There's an afterwards always part of God's discipline. And, and even speaking practically as a child, uh, you know, when I was a child, my parents did discipline me. And, and just like the text says, it was not always pleasant, and it, but there was an afterwards. And I, I remember always loving the afterwards part, you know, that it's over. And, and so there's an afterwards and we end up, you know, being corrected, we end up being shaped, so that you mentioned the word correct. That's a good word. It's not punishment. It's, we hear the word discipline, and we, and we need to press on that just a little bit. You know, discipline in what way? Well, correction, that's a good word. He's correcting us, shaping us, you know, stretching us. There's a lot of different ways you could say it uh, to understand that it's an act of his love for us. And And it says there that Earthly fathers, you know, do the best they can, basically, is what it says, which means we, we are too harsh sometimes. You know, we're maybe too lenient sometimes, too harsh sometimes. Any of that can happen. There are those moments where we react impulsively, and so the discipline and anger is due to the fact that we, we are offended in some way or they're bothering us in some way. They're interfering with our freedom in some way, you know. Uh, you know, I didn't get the child, the right child from the hospital or something. You know, this is not what I ordered. Um, and so we're very self-oriented, selfish. And so we, we blow up. Uh, it just seems that sometimes it's not really discipline. It's ventilation. We just snap, you know, and we just say something, you know, to make ourselves feel better, to be honest about it. 
And God never does that. He never snaps like that. He never is impulsive with no reason. Uh, it's not that kind of, of, of anger. It is a holy, righteous anger that loves and corrects us and shapes us and so forth. I, I think that's another way then we put something on God by exegeting our own experience, you know, maybe what we experienced from a father or maybe how we've disciplined our own children. Can I add a quick footnote to that? No. In, in <laughs> yes, please do. <laughs> and we have to understand, too, that, that, that the discipline can take the form of corrective discipline, but sometimes it's just formative discipline. Sometimes it's not that you've done something wrong. We think of corrective, that means it's a path that we're going down and God wants to correct it. But sometimes it's formative discipline. He's just, he's just growing us up and he's maturing. I mean, it's kind of discipline where you wake up, you know, you're, you're training for the football team. And so you start waking up at five o'clock because you want to be more disciplined. You want to go out and run. And so because you're building your muscle, you're building your stamina. So sometimes God will, will bring pain and trials into our life, not because we've done anything wrong that he wants to correct us, but he wants to just build our faith. He wants to mature us up. So it's not always, oh, hardship and trials have come into my life. I must be doing something wrong. That's not necessarily all of the case, always the case. Yeah, and, and certainly there can be consequences to our own sinful choices, no doubt about it. And, and even still, it's not anger. It's not punishment. He's using it. I don't know that we can, that I can always tell, you know, necessarily what's going on, you know, whether this is the result, correction due to my own error, or it's just, in God's providence that he's forming me and shaping me and instructing me. And I don't know that that really needs to be our focus. I mean, there is a place for searching my heart to see if there is something I need to confess, no doubt about it. But by and large, uh, it's, it, what's more helpful is to go back to, to the reality of who God is as my father. What, is, what are his purposes in this, you know? Uh, those purposes never get thwarted. In, in your first uh, sermon that, that night, Rick, about... Uh, uh, even that first point about the promises that he makes, he fulfills them and he accomplishes his purposes. That's actually helpful to remember that in life. I mean, I, I think about the kinds of ills that we suffer with that that could help, whether it's depression or whether it's, uh, you know, discouragement or, uh, or fear or whatever it is, that, that that's a reality that really helps if we start to think about that, you know, and accept that, yeah. Now, I want to, I want to though, ask you something. Is there a danger of presumption in any of this that, that we should keep in mind? Especially when you start talking about the privileges, as you did today, you know, that we have these privileges as a child of God. I'm a son of the king. I, I, I have heard some distorted sort of uh, conclusions about all that from, in certain camps, uh, pressing that so much that it almost sounds like a, a form of arrogance of rights that I have. I don't know if you've noticed that or have been exposed to that. Is there a danger of being presumptuous there with God in some way? What would help us against that, fight that? There's always a danger, you know, of being presumptive, of, of, of any of his mercies. I, I mean, it's just, it's, just our, it's just our, you know, the, the hangover of the fall. And uh, even with regard to the doctrine of God, you know, it's, sometimes it is an error. It's just plain our little minds forget and, uh, you know, in the midst of circumstances. So one of the I, one of the things I just practically, that's why we gather on the Lord's day. That's why we seek the word of God. That's why we stay in the scriptures. So so our minds can stay tuned, um, you know, and avoid the errors. Maybe that we're instructed about that we got involved in. 
But I, it seemed like Anthony mentioned some of those things where we just say, you know, I'm a child of the king and I can do anything I want or, or and people ought to treat me different. And, and that's one of the presumptions, you know, that uh, I'm, I don't understand why I'm suffering if I'm a child. You know, that this shouldn't be happening to me. I've heard that a lot. Why am I being sick or finding the loss of a child? I'm a Christian. And so the presumption enters into our own experience that we're, we're immune to those kinds of things because we're the children of God. And as he said, all it may bring is more trouble. So, uh, you know, we were appointed and destined for these things. In a certain sense, we, we don't look for the kindness of this world, and, and nor do we look at necessarily to be spared of any kind of suffering. And, and sometimes the, it seems like that it gets presumptive when uh, we ourselves can't believe that we ourselves would lose a job. Or, or, or that we would have difficulty where the world itself is also experiencing the same things. And, and sometimes we seem to be more childish and immature about that than sometimes believers who have no anchors and no hope. Uh, so maybe that's where, it, maybe it's presumptive by the way that it appears. I don't know, you know what other things might be operating, but Paul says, you know, I didn't insist upon my rights as an apostle. You know, I gave them up for the sake of the gospel. I could have asserted them, but where the gospel is concerned, that I'm willing to, I'm willing to forsake those things, you know, for the sake of the gospel. And so he didn't stand on his rights uh, as a as a believer. Uh, he 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 just stood in the in the confidence of God's favor, and he didn't need to hang on to the on those privileges necessarily. Uh, I think what we should do is not presume upon them. We ought to use the privileges. You know, in, in, in the sense of, okay, now I am privileged. Let me give glory to God. I am privileged. Let me take advantage of the graces that he gives me that are a part of my privilege that I might glorify him. And so That's a big difference then. Let me take advantage of my privileges and make demands of my rights to God. I'm a child of a king and, and an elder brother. Uh, Christ is my elder brother. I'm a co-heir with him. And and so I have these rights. I think there's even a connection in, in some way. It's not the only thing that motivates the name it and claim it, you know, error. But there's a connection there that I can name and claim things because of who I am. I'm a child of the king. And, and uh, they start thinking almost as if God owes me something now because I have this privileged position. That's different than saying I have this privileged position. Let me give thanks to God and glorify him. How can I bring glory to him? May I ask a question? And I agree with everything that was just said. Could, could, it, could it be that in a reaction to the presumption of what we would believe to be heresy of the word faith movement and the prosperity gospel, that in reaction to that, that we, we, we could possibly swing the pendulum too far to the other side, that, that there is just a treasure house of, of, of God's grace that he is desirous to pour out upon his people, uh, which it includes the suffering, the pain for our good and things like that. But because we don't want to, you know, even bump up anywhere against prosperity gospel, word faith and, and those things that we move so far away where we're not fully realizing and enjoying the privileges that we do have as adopted children uh, of our heavenly father. Yeah, absolutely. Even even uh, think about it, and I'm, I'm not saying everybody's wrong when they say this, but you know we can easily uh, identify ourselves uh, without really thinking about what we what we're saying there. That I, I'm a sinner saved by grace. That's who I am. I'm a I'm still a sinner saved by grace. Well, 
I think I know what, what we mean by that, you know, and, but at the same time, it's not so much that that's still my identity. The, the only thing that's different is that I, I've just, you know, fortunately got saved. But there is a change now. I have a new identity now. Uh, and, and if we lose that thought, then we begin to resort only to the, the worm theology, you know, such a worm as I, and that's it without resting in the fact that God has given me new life. I do have these privileges. I have been adopted into his family. That's a glorious truth. And the privileges of prayer, the privileges of access, the privilege of living my life in his presence, the privilege of him accepting my meager attempts to serve him, and he's glorified by it, and, he, and he's pleased with that. I mean, we, we can so forget all that, maybe as a reaction to the... Yeah to the word of faith over here, that we don't want to do that. We don't want to be presumptive. We don't want to make demands of God. Look what they're doing. And, and yet there's an error the other way if we're not careful when we and, think about ourselves. And, and I just bring it up just, and maybe it's born out of just my context where, uh, you know, in, in, in particularly urban settings and African-American context, it's just so much word faith theology, so much prosperity gospel. I mean, the, the most popular preachers in, in my kind of context are generally prosperity preachers. And so, at our church, we make much about like, no, 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 and we say against. And I, I remember particularly one lady was coming to our church for, for a number of weeks, and uh, we, we, we preached on, you know, you can't demand that, that you know, that, that God heals you and the way that prosperity preachers take, you know, healing and the atonement, they, they misuse that, they abuse that. And I remember having a con conversation with her, and she says, okay, you know, so you guys don't believe that God ever heals. Right. And I mean, that's what she heard us saying, that God doesn't ever heal, it, you know, and and maybe that's what we sounded like. And then it just had to say, no, we believe that God is sovereign over healing and and Christians should pray for healing. And God sometimes, you know, for his own good pleasure will heal, but we can't demand that of God. So I think it swings back to what you were talking about before, just balance, you know, to have that balance of what are our privileges? How do we as God's children humbly ask what the father offers to us? And being willing to say what the son said, he asked for him to remove the cup, but not my will, thy will be done. Just having that humble disposition to be able to go to our father and not demand, but still ask because he has good gifts to give to his children. You know, somebody ought to write a book on that, Balance. Balance. But I, I think that, uh, yeah, and there's a place for resting in that and uh, affirming our identity and, and realize how many times the Bible refers to us as saints, you know. We're not necessarily continually called sinners anymore. That's not the same thing as saying, I, I do sin, you know. But, but how does God see me, you know? Well, justified, you know, the, the glory of that. Uh, my sins are forgiven. I, I'm, I'm not, uh, I have a standing before him. But not only that, he's welcomed me into his family. I'm, I'm a part of his family. Uh, and uh, I, I love the, the, how you said, Rick, that there's no difference in the value of, of our adoption for each of us. I think it was you that said that. He, 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 you, you told me that he said him that. Give yeah, that's what for I mean. that. You're the one who told me that he said that. So uh, that was very helpful. Uh, what, did so, I, what did I say? Let me start over. One of you should have said... Uh, you had a golden opportunity to say this, and maybe neither one of you said it. I don't, I don't know now, but maybe I was thinking it. But, yeah, you know, there are so many aspects of what God does. Our regeneration is the same for each of us. There, there's no different he degrees. Said, he said we were, we were all his favorites. 
Yeah, something like that. He had, yeah, yeah, the, yeah, in a certain sense, God had no favorites. Yeah. In fact, he has all favorites, yeah. his own. That's what he was saying. Yeah, there's no difference in, in our justification, our legal standing, and there's no difference in our adoption. I, I'm not in a more privileged position of my adoption than another, uh, than anybody else in, in the family. And that's comforting. And so God sees us that way. I mean, the Bible refers to us that way as saints and, and children of God and so forth. So, right, I, it's, it's a wonderful uh, challenge uh, to keep in mind all these truths so that we don't get balance out of balance either way. But it all goes back to this original discussion that the problem is we're getting our views on these things from our own experience somehow. Uh, so I'm going to go out on a limb here. I think it was you that said <laughs> that <laughs> the last thing we need to do is, is look in, within ourselves, you know, and focus on ourselves to try to reach some of these conclusions. Does that ring a bell at all? That was actually me. That, yeah. that first <laughs> night. Yeah, I would never say what, look within yourself. What did you say? I mean, uh, you know, <laughs> that I can comment here on. Uh, uh, no, I mean, we, so we don't want to look within ourselves for these definitions. We don't want to look within ourselves for, for uh, uh, comfort and assurance uh, that putting ourselves as the center of the universe. That's a, you talked about the universe. Yeah, I remember that now. And uh, that, yeah, we're not, we're not the center of the universe uh, at all. I said that, yes. Yeah, okay, and that was good. That was really good, what he said about that. Uh, and... Uh, yeah, that's I, I think it was. A, I think it was. We were talking about um, when we don't feel like God loves us, when we don't feel like a child of God. That the answer is not inside of us. The answer is outside. The answer is in God's revelation of Himself in the Scripture. And so, don't don't allow yourself to be governed so much by what's happening in your heart or how you feel, but to go to Scripture and remind yourself of the reality of God's revelation, what he says about you in relationship to himself in the Word of God is what matters, and let that govern your heart no matter what you're feeling at any particular time. So let's apply that to the future, and I know both of you have, have answered all of this in, in various ways in your sermons, so we're being redundant, but it, it helps to do that sometimes and to make it more specific, but let's look ahead. I mean, it, it certainly seems like times are going to keep getting more difficult and more difficult. Uh, persecution uh, can and likely will increase. It's already, certainly in many places of the world, has been for a long time, persecution, but we'll see more of that. Just maybe speak personally, how does contemplating what Scripture says about God as our Father, how can that help someone uh, prepare for the future and for persecution that comes? Rick, how do you, how do you well, look the first, at the future? I, I mean, the that? first thing is, is that uh, that future is in his hands. And that's, I, I mean, to me, that's the, that's the best and greatest reality. I don't need, I, I mean, the future is interesting and what all may happen, but uh, but really, I, as I keep in mind the fact that this God and uh, is in control of all those things, and th and so that I keep in mind again what I know about that God in terms of His character, His wisdom, His power, His goodness, His faithfulness, and all of those things, uh, and that's what I that's that's what holds me fast is is that truth, and that I don't fear the future. Uh, um, uh, what I desire to do is be faithful in the present. Uh, and uh, knowing that he'll he'll be faithful, <laughs> you know, myself. He's a faithful father, and that will never change. Uh, yeah. His faithfulness to me as a father today will be the same faithfulness yeah, to me and as a father. Yeah, and, and really, I think that's probably, uh, I, I mean, pastorally, that's 
to prepare the saints of God for whatever may come. Uh, you know, you set before them the majesty of the God to whom they belong more than anything else. Yeah, I would just say yes and amen to that. And, and it's a doctrine of providence. It's a doctrine of God's sovereignty. And, and it's not as if he has not told us that these days would be. I think there's a sense, and I, I don't mean to uh, minimize anybody's suffering or pain that they've gone through, but I think, you know, as, as Western Christians, um, maybe we've been lulled in some senses to a false sense of security, at least in the way that circumstances are. I mean, we have brothers and sisters in other lands that have been persecuted. I forget the statistics about, you know, how many Christians have actually been martyred in the last 200 years, more than the first 1,800 years, you know, of the church. So our brothers and sisters around the world, they're suffering. And I think now things are starting to come our way. Culture is changing and, you know, just our society is not a friend of Christians and, and we're starting to feel that. But our father told us that these things would be. Don't be surprised when, you know, the fiery ordeals come your way. We know that. Jesus said that. I think we, we referred to that today, that uh, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. If they persecuted, you know, the master, they're going to persecute the slaves. So our father has warned us that these days would come. But he's also told us that he's in charge and that he's going to use these things. We'll talk about this a little bit, a little bit later. Uh, he's going to use all of these things that we go through for our good, which is the purpose to conform us into the image uh, of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So we can rest that our father knows what he's doing. Whatever he is that he permits or, or brings into our life, it all has purpose, glorious purpose. And so we just have to rest in that. The other thing that I would say about this is, as well is that we've heard the saying that, you know, it, it's, it's, it's the backdrop of the darkness, of the wickedness of sin, that the gospel shines most brightly, right? That as believers in our current time, that we can look upon the landscape of our society and we can lament what's happening and it's right to do that. We can be discouraged in some senses of all of the wickedness and the sin and, and all of those things. But, you know, we were talking about this a little bit about a, a particular session that we saw online. But, but if we keep focusing on that over and over and over and again, we could just become angry. We could just become bitter. We could begin to look at people in the world as the enemy, as opposed to look at people in the world, they are in bondage to the enemy. And it's a mission field for us as believers. And, and, and God means to shine the gospel brightly through us in the midst of all of the darkness that seems to be hovering over our society and coming over our society. So Again, not to minimize any pain, uh, not, not to rejoice in any wickedness, but what a wonderful time to be a believer. Amen. What a, what a wonderful time to hold forth the word of truth in the midst of this darkness. There are people out there still yet that God desires to save, and we have the message of the gospel. So, yes, it's going to be harder and harder, but God saves. His purposes won't be thwarted by the wickedness of our days. And we're talking about a father that, that does not change, you know, and so his promises are still true, his character has not changed, and whatever we face, he'll st still be our loving uh, father, and that can bring comfort. You said rest in that, but that connects then to something on our part of trust and faith. How, how can we grow in our faith in believing this? How, how, do, we, how do we learn to trust this? Rick, how do you counsel somebody like that struggling with faith and trust? The, um, 
the, the first thing is, is that, uh, you know, that is our, that is our difficulty. I believe, help me in my unbelief. And, and so it's the humility of just saying, Lord, help me. I, I mean, and, and in the very, in that very exercise, we ourselves are trusty. I mean, you get these, you get these psalms of desertion. Where have you gone? Where am I? You know, how long are you going to forsake me? And yet the reality is the psalmist is addressing himself to the God he feels has forsaken him. God will hold us fast. Uh, and, and, and so the first thing is just to be honest about the struggle and to plead with him who gives the grace to trust. It's not in us to do that. And, uh, and so he himself is willing to do that uh, and give us the grace if we ask. Uh, in fact, a lot of times we receive so many million things that we never ask for, mercies that we can't even give enough thanks for, you know. Uh, but I, I think the other thing is, is uh, well, he will, he will help you to trust. He will, in a sense, exercise the disciplining or the growth that will bring you to rely on him more and more. Uh, and, uh, and again, uh, I think it's, that's all I can say, <laughs> you know. And that's at the very heart of, of our faith. You know, Hebrews says, you know, that faith is, we, we are believing in something we cannot see, but God works that in our hearts. And I, I think there are things like that we do forget to pray for and, and just ask, you know. And, you know, I, I do say this to people sometimes, you know, they're telling me something about they're struggling with. It's like, tell God that. He, he knows it already. You're not shocking him. You know, you're not, I mean, he's listening in even right now as you're telling me that, but he already knows it. He knows it better than you do, what your struggle is. And he loves to, to, to give faith and uh, to help someone grow in what it means to trust and rest in these truths about the fatherhood uh, of God. And I, th and I think that was, what, you know, what Anthony said, just with, which was so helpful in, out of uh, John 17, the way Christ himself he went through that struggle in his humanity, you know, in Gethsemane uh, and in anticipation of it and all of those things. It was going to the Father, going to the Father. The Son in his humanity, this is the other blessing for us, is that he knows what it means to go through these struggles. And, and he himself gives us the example of how we are to respond. We have one who was tempted in all things like we were. And, and I assume tempted in a certain sense to lose heart. Tempted to, tempted to, uh, to lose faith, and, and yet he cries to the Father, and which is the you know the perfect example to acknowledge, to acknowledge our weakness, to acknowledge our ignorance, to acknowledge all those things in the face of Him who knows everything and is stronger than we are and is wiser than we are and is working all things well. Well, man, thank you so much for that. Uh, there are, uh, I know, wonderful resources out there that even help us grow in these areas. Just real quick, are, are there particular resources along the way that have, that have helped your walk with Christ, even on a topic like this, learning more what it means of who God is and his character? Are there certain, when I try to think, when people ask me that, I, I never can think of the titles of things, you know, but, yeah. I, I, I mentioned this, I think, in my, in my first talk. Um, John Piper's book on Providence is... Uh, it's it just really helpful. I almost made it to the end. And it, it literally, it is 711 pages. And, uh, and if you, John Piper's writing is not necessarily for everybody, um, but he just does a, a, a wonderful job of taking category after category after category after category, every category you can think about 
in, in going to scripture after scripture after scripture, showing that God is sovereign over it all. And he writes with a, with a certain um, pastoral sensitivity in applying it uh, to your heart in, 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 a, in a masterful way. And so I, I was greatly helped by that, of, of just being reminded of the extent and the expansiveness of the providence of God and how it's actually tied uh, again, with sovereignty, uh, you know, purposeful sovereignty was really, really helpful. So I would commend that book uh, to those of you that don't have it. And uh, yeah, there are so many. I, one just comes to mind is Thomas Brooks, the Puritan, the crooks in the lot. You know, life we like to go, we think is just going to go just straight down the highway that we have in our minds. And God has no straight highway. And uh, and he turns and makes the detours in places where we go and experiences we have we never anticipated but he knew them for our own good. And so it is a blessing. It is a blessing to trust in the God of the crooks in the lot because there's going to be a lot of crooks in the lot. Not crooks like thieves. Uh, bends in the road. <laughs> Detours like that. Crooked getting places. off on the 421 and going someplace to, I don't know where it is to here. But uh, so we, we had some crooks in the lot just coming up here to, you know, to find uh, from uh, Charlotte. So, and we made it by God's kindness. Amen.